The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. If you're ready to get your physical, emotional, and spiritual life in order, Join us for the next hour as we meet some interesting people who will share stories of success and wisdom that you can apply to your own life. Now, here's Dr. Connie. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for listening in today. Uh, I love telling stories about success and wisdom, and this show is definitely going to share that. But I always like to start out with my honorable mentions. I don't do shout-outs because I don't like to shout. makes me upset if I have to shout and raise my voice. So let me mention a few people I call my honorable mentions. From our Signs from God show uh, about two weeks ago, that was with Reverend Richard Mirage at Unity. I got a very nice uh, email from Elizabeth who writes... I just finished The Signs from God with guest Reverend Richard Mirage. What a wonderful and inspiring show it was. I had tears in my eyes and a lump in my throat, as I so often do when I'm at church listening to our beloved Reverend Richard on Sunday mornings. His story is so compelling, and his courage inspires and moves me profoundly. Your introduction that included your own background and interview were lovely, charming, and personable. Excellent job, all. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth, for your wonderful words. I also want to shout out the people who support us in what we do so that I can be here every Thursday afternoon. A special shout out to Rachel in my office who is manning the phones and messages while I'm away. And also to her husband, Marcos. Marcos is going to receive his American citizenship tomorrow. So congratulations to you, Marcos, as you raise your hand and do the oath of citizenship. It is really hard to become an American citizen, as a lot of people can tell you. My parents became American citizens after my father joined the U.S. Navy, and you have to go through a very long process, and you have to memorize a lot of information. And as Rachel told me, she knows all the the articles of the of the uh, amendments to the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. You have to know the Bill of Rights. So a lot of work there, and congratulations to Marcos for your hard work. I also want to say hello to the lovely ladies of Friends of the Hills. They are in Fountain Hills, and I had the honor of speaking to their large group yesterday. Such an enthusiastic, creative, wonderful, supportive group of people in Fountain Hills. And also, I want to reflect this the first, oh, the first 15 minutes of this show on something that happened last week. Last weekend, I was in San Diego for a reunion And I'm always hesitant to go to those reunions because a lot of times I look at people and I don't recognize them after 30 years. Well, it was a reunion of the people in the Navy who had gone through internal medicine internship and residency with me at the Navy Hospital in San Diego. So for many of them, that was was over 30 years ago. And I was asked to speak last Saturday at their special grand rounds in the auditorium at the Navy Hospital, along with about eight other alumni, to share what we did after the military. 
And I was totally blown away with the people who spoke because they went on to do incredible things. And I want to do my, sh my, my honorable mentions to them right now. One of them was Greg Martin, Dr. Greg Martin, who is an infectious disease doctor. He, at the currently job, is he works at State Department. He covers outbreaks. And so super brilliant guy. Rear Admiral Colin Chin was there at the event. He's a pulmonary doctor who is a two-star Rear Admiral. And he is currently the medical advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So he advises the senior military staff on medical assets around the globe. Dr. Marty Edelman attended, and Marty was in my residency group in internal medicine 20 plus years ago. Marty is a board certified oncologist. He's a researcher. He's published many papers on lung cancer treatment. He's a chairman of hematology oncology at Fox Chase Cancer Center in Philadelphia. Dr. Stephanie Brodine was there. She's an infectious disease doctor as well. She's head of epidemiology and biostatistics at San Diego State. And Carla Lamb, Dr. Carla Lamb, also pulmonary clini uh, clinical care, critical care doctor, who is currently the director of interventional pulmonary at Leahy Clinic in Boston. So there are incredible people, great resumes, who went on to do incredible things. There are over 100 alumni gathered, and we shared our experience with the interns, the residents. And I think it was good to go back because it allows you to reflect on your life in many ways about your journey. And I, when I look at my journey in medicine, I didn't grow up thinking I was going to go into medicine or be a doctor. I had, that was the furthest from my idea. When you ask somebody who's 5, 7, 9, 10, or 11, what are you going to be when you grow up? Well, had you asked me when I was five years old, I'd say, gee, I want to be a teacher. Then if you asked me at the age of seven, I was very involved with the Catholic Church. I said, I think I want to be a nun. Then I realized nuns couldn't date, and that was a no-no, so I decided I wouldn't be a nun. When I was in fifth grade, my father brought me a, an old-fashioned typewriter. He brought that to me with an Arkham book manual and said, listen, I think you should learn how to type. Because if you learn how to type, maybe one day you can take the civil service exam and maybe be a clerk typist. And if you're really good, maybe one day be a secretary. And I said, Dad, thank you. And so I was eight years old. I learned how to type very quickly. And I think it's helped me all those years because I type all my notes. It makes it really valuable to learn how to type. But what I did with the clerk typist qualification was when I was in high school, I took the GS clerk typist test it was a GS-3, and that's what I did in the summer. I worked at a, the Navy base in San Diego as a clerk typist for part-time work. So all these things that came to mind. Now, how did I decide to go into medicine? I was living in Taipei. My dad was stationed in Taiwan. I went to Taipei American School, and we had career day one day. So I was seventh grade, and one of my classmates, Debbie Cowherd was her name. Her father, Commander Cowherd, was head of OBGYN. So he came to talk to our class, and he told us the story of what it was like delivering babies. And I got very excited hearing that story, and that I recall my father's story where he had lost his mother. My father was one of seven children, and his mother died giving birth to their, her eighth child. She died in one of those bamboo huts in the Philippines. She bled to death. The baby was delivered by a midwife. Baby was born, was stillborn. And as they took the baby out, they noticed my father's mother started breathing rapidly. She was losing lots of blood. 
So most likely she had a placenta previa, so she, she hemorrhaged to death. And her death impacted my father and all his siblings significantly. And to this day, my father now is 93. He misses, he misses her and how it changed his life. So I said, well, gee, I think I want to be a doctor. I think I want to go into OBGYN. So I applied to numerous med schools. <clears throat> I got into only two. The one that took me, actually, the one that, that was the best one was the military medical school, Uniformed Services University School of Medicine. And I matriculated in 1977 after I finished my undergraduate at UC San Diego. I was in the second class to go through, and we had 65 people in my class, of which there were 15 women in those days. We were divided into Army, Navy, Air Force, and Public Health Service. So because that is a full scholarship, you start day one in uniform, but you're commissioned as an officer. So if you look in the parking lot of that school, we all had brand new cars because we all had jobs that the government was paying for us because we're military. So the first year was really hard. And they always tell med students, your first year in med school, the information they throw at you is overwhelming. It's like trying to get a drink of water from a fire hose. I mean, you're just tons of water, tons of information going at you. And I was really struggling. I had moved away from home, my home in San Diego from my parents, and I'd never lived alone before. So I had my own little apartment in Silver Spring, and it was winter, and I was just, I think I was depressed. I think I had seasonal affective disorder. And I was struggling, and I was one of three people in my class who flunked gross anatomy. So instantly, I was not a natural to go into surgery. So I had to retake gross anatomy that summer, but I didn't feel so bad because the other two people who had to retake it, one was a, a, a JAG attorney. He was a judge advocate attorney, a former attorney, civilian life, and a military attorney, very bright guy. And then the other person was a super genius who just didn't want to pay attention to the course. So we retook it. I got an A, moved on in my course. The last third and fourth years in medical school, I really loved the best because that's your clinical time. That's when you rotate through the wards, the different, subs, uh, the, the different subspecialties, and you start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, and you contact patients. And, and again, I had entered medicine thinking, I'm going to go into OBGYN. Well, I did a rotation at that time to what was called Bethesda Naval Hospital. And during that rotation, I got the sense that it wasn't really meant for me. It was a very busy practice, a busy service, and I had some really grouchy people there. And I always tell doctors, always be understanding and kind to the people you teach because they'll always remember that. It'll impact them. And I remember there was a particular doctor who was particularly... I would say malignant towards the students, particularly me, and I just really had a bad outcome. I just didn't like the way I was treated, wasn't happy, and it impacted how I looked upon OBGYN. And, and so as a result, I said, okay, I'm not gonna do that. The next month, I rotated through Letterman Army Hospital, or Walter Reed Hospital, and I was so impressed by the internal medicine doctors because they were patient, kind, understanding, and they would love to teach. And I said, that's it. I'm going to go into internal medicine. But I want to give you a little follow-up about that doctor who gave me a hard time in OBGYN because karma can be a challenge for some people. Fast forward 30-plus years, I'm in Tucson as the keynote speaker at the American College of Gynecologic Surgeons. And the night before my presentation, my speech, I'm at dinner with the faculty, and I look across the table from me, 
at the dinner and I, I look at the nameplate of the doctor and I realize it's that doctor. It's the doctor who gave me such a hard time. And so I introduced myself and I asked him, did you train at Bethesda Naval Hospital back in the late 70s? He says, I did. I said, was your specialty Krukenberg tumors? Because I remember that was his big deal. And I, he said, well, yeah. I said, well, you know, Dr. So-and-so, uh, I was one of your med students. Really, you were? I said, yes, you were. And I'm going to mention you tomorrow in my keynote. And he was so somewhat flattered. So when I got up and they, you know, they read the list of your bio and on and on and on. And then they introduced me. I, I share the fact that I wanted to go into OBGYN, but this particular doctor convinced me that I pick another specialty. And as a result, I didn't go into OBGYN. I went into internal medicine, which led me to go to the White House. And that's all history. So I really thanked him in the end. But I always tell doctors, be kind to the ones you you teach because it really does impact them. So I went into internal medicine, but it wasn't straightforward. You know, you follow a career path. I did my one year of internal medicine internship at the Navy Hospital San Diego. And at the end of the first year, I was really conflicted. I said, I like internal medicine, but I was being lured by dermatology. I wanted to do external medicine. I wanted to go into dermatology. And that was one of the most competitive programs in the Navy at that time. So I said, listen, I'll, I'll go to the fleet. And what happens is in the Navy, you go after your internship, they send you out to sea on board a ship as a ship's doctor, or you become a squadron leader, or you go with the Marines, or you do something outside in the field. So I was assigned to a destroyer tender right after internship. It was a USS Prairie. It was the oldest ship in the fleet. We had a crew of 750 men, of which 65 of the crew were women. I was head of the department, which had 15 corpsmen. We had an OR, an x-ray room, a pharmacy, and a sick bay with eight beds. So I had a whole department to myself. So at the end of internship, I did a year at sea. And then I realized I really like that. I like being head of a department, having my own staff, my own corpsmen to teach. And I signed up for a second year, which took me on a six-month deployment of the Western Pacific. So I was doing that, and at the end of the six-month deployment, my second year, my husband at the time was working for a computer company, and he sent me a telegraph, because they didn't have internet in those days, and said he was applying to law school. So when I got back, he was in law school. I was wrapping up my final year at sea, and I got accepted to internal medicine residency. So I went back to the Naval Hospital San Diego for my first year of residency, and it was horrible. It was horrible. It was difficult, and in those days, back in the 19, mid-80s, uh, they didn't limit how many days or how many hours you had duty. You had duty 36 hours. The reason they call surgeons and doctors house officers, you live in the house. You, the house is the hospital. You never leave. You sleep there. You eat there. So we had, in those days, you had 72 hours of nonstop duty. And there were times, and we would call among us at the reunion, you would have had no sleep. You're in the middle of the night doing somebody's history and you're falling asleep. Or you get uh, called to a cardiac arrest, you're doing CPR, and you almost want to put your head down on the person's chest because you're falling asleep. And not a safe way to do it. So after six months of my, my first year in residency, I said, I'm done. I'm not going to do this. So I submitted my papers to resign from my program to Captain Mike Crusett, who's the chairman. 
And what happened was two of my colleagues from my residency group had pulled me aside and talked to them, talked to me. One of them is Bruce Meth, and Bruce unfortunately passed away two years ago. He was from Massachusetts, brilliant pulmonologist, super smart guy, and nicest guy. And he pulled me aside, says, Connie, hang in there, don't quit. And the other doctor from my residency group was Jeffrey Bell. Jeff Bell is a brilliant nephrologist, private practice now in Atlanta. And he says, you can't give up on us, you can't quit. So I thought long and hard, and I said, in the end, most people, if you live long enough, they're gonna need an internist. I like working with patients of all ages. And I said, you know what, I think I'll stay. So I went back to Dr. Cruset. I said, tear up those papers, I'm hanging in there. And I went through the, fir you know, the first year of residency, the second year of residency, and, and then just hung in there. And every step along the way, there was something I had planned to do, but it got changed. After residency, I was asking the detailer, because the military tells you where to go. I said, please send me someplace near the hospital, or I'll apply, I was thinking of applying for fellowship. I had applied for a cardiology fellowship, and there were two of us applying for fellowship at that time, and they picked one person, they only had one slot that year, and it went to Peter Fleck. Peter wound up finishing his time in the Navy and became electrophysiologist in Little Rock. And I hung in there, went to Port Wyneme, and I always wondered why they sent me there. It was a little clinic in, in California, north of LA. But I think it was a blessing because it was during my Port Wyneme tour that both my sons were born. My husband at that time was working in a law firm in LA, so that was my baby tour. I had two kids during that time. It was a clinical practice, and it got me time to spend with patients and being the only practitioner as an internist there. So after my three and a half years at Port Wyneme, they said, come back to Naval Hospital San Diego. I came back, and then after a year there, they sent me to the White House. So I tell people, a lot of times our careers are never straightforward. There are certain junctures in our careers. It changes. Things come out of the blue. You change your mind. And I really think, I tell people, don't write out your career plans in pen. Put them in pencil because they can change. Be open to change. Be open to opportunity. Sometimes the things that happen are better than the things you imagine. So I look back and I, I think of that reunion. I think of how hard it was. And we really do. I share that common theme with my alumni that, my gosh, you really had it hard. And it is tough. It's tough being a doctor. And no doubt about it. It's not an easy thing. You don't go into medicine because it's easy. You go in it because you're drawn to it, you're called to it. But I, I, we, we joke about it's really tough undergoing our training. But hey, as someone may say, it's tough but it ain't brain surgery. And that brings me to our guest today. I mean, today in studio, you know, who knows better about brain surgery than our, our guest that I'm going to interview in the next uh, five minutes. But I'm going to share with you a little bit about our guest today, Dr. Bernard Bendock. He's the chairman of neurosurgery at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. And in keeping with it being, I'm going to call it Bendock Broadcast Day, because the second guest we have today is his son, Michael Bendock, who's a high school student at Phoenix Country Day School. And he is the, the oldest child, the son of Dr. Bendock and his wife, Karen, who's in studio today with daughter Sarah. So I'm going to pause uh, for a break because when I come back, I'm going to read you the incredible bio of Dr. Bendock, and I get to finally quiz the brain surgeon here. 
and pick his brain, so to speak, about what it's like being, like being a neurosurgeon. So please stand by on Dr. Connie's house calls for a special interview with Dr. Bernard Bendock, Chair of the Department of Neurosurgery at Mayo Clinic in Arizona. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Who's your doctor? When I was looking for a doctor, I thought, which person gets the best care of all and whose doctor's credentials are the most carefully reviewed? Well, the answer was obvious. Who looks after the president of the United States? My doctor is the doctor who is taking care of three presidents and their families, Dr. Connie Mariano. I've heard about her. She's board certified in internal medicine and has been practicing medicine for over 30 years. She was at the White House for over nine years and traveled everywhere with the president. Dr. Connie is available to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week by email, cell phone, or Skype. And when I see her in her private office in Scottsdale, she and her staff always treat me like I'm the president. I'm going to call her office now and join her practice. Dr. Connie Mariano, this is the doctor American presidents and their families have trusted with their lives, and I trust you with mine. For information about Dr. Connie Mariano's private practice, you need to visit drcmariano.com. Are you ready to live younger, longer? Andrew and Aaron Stevens with Apply Everyday Health are partnered with a 100-year-old company to help you build health through natural approaches. Our scientists believe that the key to a healthy lifestyle lies within nature. By using ingredients proven to be safe and effective, our products provide nutrition guaranteed to change your life in a positive way. To find out how you can get the same top-of-the-line vitamins taken daily by Olympic athletes, astronauts, and the White House doctor herself, visit applyeveryday.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to House Calls with former White House physician, Dr. Connie Mariano. If you have a question or comment for our show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to drconnieradio at gmail.com. That's drconnieradio at gmail.com. Now, back to House Calls with Dr. Connie. I'm very honored and delighted today to have in studio Dr. Bernard Bendock. And let me share with you the highlights of his incredible career and his many achievements. Dr. Bendock is the chair of the Department of Neurosurgery at Mayo Clinic in Arizona, and he is the William J. and Charles H. Mayo Professor of Neurosurgery in the Mayo Clinic College of Medicine. He was recruited here from Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine in Chicago, where he was professor and director of the Neurovascular Surgery Program. 
uh, his clinical practice is focused on the microsurgical, interventional, and radiosurgical management of complex brain tumors and neurovascular diseases. Dr. Bendock's research is focused on innovations in minimally invasive surgery and precision surgery, including augmented reality, which we're going to ask him about, and image-guided techniques. He's an editorial board member of several journals and actively involved in teaching and mentoring. He's been awarded grants from the NIH as well as various foundations. He has over 250 peer-reviewed papers, two books, and 100 book chapters related to his research and clinical practice. An amazing, incredible clinician, surgeon, professor, but also a very kind, caring, incredible doctor who all my patients I send them to always remark about the time and care that Dr. Bendock affords them. So we are so blessed, so honored to have you today in studio, Dr. Bendock. Thank you, Dr. Connie. Dr. Bendock uh, has a little bit of jet lag today. He, f he flew in uh, back to Phoenix from a trip to Germany. My gosh. Did you ever think your life would, would be doing this and traveling you know, all over the world? It is in the fast lane occasionally, and uh, you know I, I wouldn't miss this interview for the world, and it's an honor, great honor to be here. Really enjoyed hearing your story, and very inspirational. Did you always plan on becoming a neurosurgeon? You know, I think neurosurgery for me brought together a couple childhood dreams. You know, as I listened to your story, it reminded me of some of my childhood, and you know, when you're, when you're a, a seven-year-old boy or a nine-year-old boy, you think about, you know, you, I remember watching a show called MacGyver where you want to fix things. Mm -hmm. I remember seeing uh, Superman, the movie, in the late 70s, and you want to, you dream of being the hero. And then, you know, you do well in school and then you get inspiring teachers. And I remember in my ninth grade biology class uh, hearing about, it was the endocrine lecture and listening to a lecture on the pituitary gland and how a little jelly bean can control the whole the hormones in the body and I was just floored and I said I need to learn more about this and 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 I think just uh, subconsciously or consciously you just get drawn into a field and then I decided I want to be a doctor but then when I got to medical school my challenge was that I liked everything and and sometimes it's about mentorship so your story rang true and and uh, several neurosurgeons walked into anatomy class on the first day and they brought some slides showing the brain and and I just felt like a kid who wanted to be an astronaut who just saw pictures of the lunar landing. And I just felt that the brain, you know, if you think about it, the brain and space are the two incredible frontiers for humanity. And I felt that like, well, I would love doing many things. I felt that focusing on the brain would probably be one of the amazing opportunity for innovation. And, and, uh, and I thought in my lifetime I could make an impact. And that, that was really what drew me in. Where, how did you start your process then? Was it was it difficult for you to get into med school and the training? Can you share a little bit? Yeah. A lot of people don't know <laughs> how long it takes to become a neurosurgeon. Right. So, you know, I think it, it does take a long time. And, you know, I, I um, undergrad was in Detroit at Wayne State. And, and one of the reasons I went to Wayne State, even though I was, a, a, you know, an all-A student, uh, uh, for various reasons I won't get into, I graduated high school at age 16. So my parents said, you're not going to go away yet uh, to college. So I wound up commuting to Wayne State, which was a great school and did, had a great time. And I was president of the pre-med club. And then and I'd heard about Chicago and uh, I'd actually visited the Monet exhibit with a bunch of friends. Not the typical thing college students do, but I, <laughs> I was very drawn to the arts and the... Uh, the uh, the kind of uh, uh, very innovative spirit of Chicago. So I uh, uh, took a train ride, interviewed at Northwestern, uh, and got in. Uh, I got lucky, and 
and the rest was history. Northwestern was a great place to learn and met a lot of great mentors. And, and from there, I applied to neurosurgery, again, based on the mentors that I had met. And, and there were many along the way. Uh, it was a tough process, and neurosurgery is very competitive to get into. In some ways, not necessarily uh, totally fair or predictable, but it's, uh, you have to get really high scores to get the interview. But once you get the interview, you have to also uh, show them that you are up to the task. What your mentors say about you and the, from your rotations also matters, and you have to do a good job. Remember, for one of my rotations, I rented an apartment next to the hospital. I was the first one to arrive, last one to leave. I didn't let any other resident write a single note that month. And uh, at the end of the month, a uh, very famous neurosurgeon looked at me and says, nice job, you're going to make a great urologist. I'm like, that's <laughs> not what I wanted to hear. <laughs> he was just joking with me. And I, right. I, just, I just had lunch with him a couple weeks ago and reminded him of that story. And, but it's people like that who wind up making a difference. You look up to them and you want to model after them. And I, I was very lucky that I had a lot of great people to model after. But you also worked very hard. You really worked very hard at making it happen. Do you remember your very first surgery, the first, very first time you looked at somebody's brain? Well, um, I, I do, and uh, it was, it's overwhelming. Um, it's hard to even put it in perspective, uh, but it's, it's, it's awe. You, you get st struck with a feeling of awe, and, um, and at some point you realize, and at first, I think, I probably have never said this before, but you go through a lot of insecurity uh, until you start doing it well. It's a lot, I think, like being, I think it's a lot like being a musician and you, you look to your heroes in music and you say, I'll never be able to play like that. And I looked at my mentors and I said, gosh, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure I'll be able, ever be able to do it as well as they do, but you keep at it. And I've learned that, I didn't think of it this way back then, but knowing what I know now, if I had one advice for the next generation is the most important quality is grit. You know, intelligence is important, it gets you in the door, mm -hmm. um, but, sticking with it, perseverance, and doing it for the right reasons uh, uh, is really important. Have there been surprises along the way as a surgeon that you've seen that have happened to you that you've been surprised that took you off guard? I have. You know, I think, you know, when you're dealing with the brain and all the threats, you know, I deal with things that threaten the brain. Uh, being a neurosurgeon is like being the fire department of for, for brain health. And, and what you realize is uh, sometimes what I've learned over the years is um, recovery, the people's ability to get through something is not always predictable and people surprise you sometimes. And you have to be, you have to have rational optimism to do what I do, uh, what we do. And, and sometimes, you know, I've had comatose people who we thought everybody in the hospital wanted to give up on. Mm -hmm. And you just keep at it, you fight for your patients. And sometimes, you know, I've had, it, I remember one lovely woman who came in a coma everybody wanted to give up on and at three months she was beating her grandkids at uh, board games. Wow, And Great. Uh, and, and that, that kind of keeps you going when you can give people new birthdays and uh, restore life and, 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 and that to me has been, uh, so I'm always open to wonder, I'm always open to being surprised and learning. You have to keep learning in what, with what we do. You know, one of the biggest fears that I, I hear from my patients is really the, the dread of, oh my gosh, I might have a brain tumor, I might have a stroke, I might have a bleed. And I've seen it in my, in my personal life. My mother died two and a half years ago. She had, a, she had a large aneurysm that just ruptured. We didn't know she had an aneurysm. It just ruptured spontaneously. They resuscitated her long enough to bring her into the ICU, and then, and then she expired about four days later. Yeah. And then among other people who develop headaches. And one of the things that anybody can go online and say, you know, enter headache, worst headache in my life, 
Are there warning signs that you tell patients to look out for in terms of a bleed or brain tumor? There are. You know, I think, you know, headache, for example, uh, is, is a very common complaint, probably one of the top complaints doctors face in the clinic or the ER. Some of the characteristics of a headache that should raise an alarm bell, that this is not just a benign headache, what I call a, a potentially life-threatening, a headache that could imply a life-threatening problem, is typically sudden onset and explosive. That's one type of worrisome headache, and that could imply a brain hemorrhage. So most headaches, as it turns out, are usually gradual and onset and build up over time. But a headache that comes on like an explosion out of the blue and lasts for more than just a second uh, is, 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 a, is a very worrisome type of headache and should be investigated. That uh, person who experiences that type of headache should call 911 and get to an ER. Another type of worrisome headache is a headache that's associated with nausea and vomiting. Nausea is quite common with headaches, but when people start to vomit with a headache, it could imply that there's high brain pressure, and that could be, imply that there's a brain tumor. Uh, a headache that worsens with lying down can be very worrisome because that could imply that it's pressure-related. So there are, there are symptoms, and you know, being, doing what we do, we, uh, people think that it's all just about doing the surgery. A lot of it is also detective work, and that takes a lot of experience. One of my mentors, his favorite saying was, listen to the patient. So it's very important to communicate to your doctor to, and, and to have a low threshold to get to an ER if you have those types of headaches that I described. So you must operate pretty quick. Have you been in situations where somebody's coming in, they've got a bleed, you've got to work pretty rapidly, don't you? You do, and, and sometimes you have to be, you do. And it's a lot, again, like being in the fire department. I remember one lady who, when I was back in Chicago, collapsed at that gas station across from the, uh, the McDonald's on Ontario as mm -hmm. you come into Chicago. And right at the gas station, they brought her, the EMS brought her to Northwestern. So it was only a matter of maybe 10, 20 minutes before she came, but she was essentially had an exam that was consistent with brain death. Her pupils were blown. And I think people, in those situations, you do have minutes to act. In that situation, we took the patient right to surgery, and she had had a, a big hemorrhage from an aneurysm. We quickly got the pressure off, secured the aneurysm, took out the blood clot, and she actually recovered to about 95% at one-year follow-up. She was having a couple, some trouble with speech, but very subtle. She was back. She was a mother of two beautiful children, and uh, she came in with her husband and two children, and, and you really feel good about what you do. But in that situation, had we hesitated right uh, even for 10 minutes uh, it could have been game over she was in the right she was in the right place at the wrong time I mean she was she actually was very fortunate when that yeah. happened yeah you know there there are kids who come to me and say you know I want to be a neurosurgeon you, you talked about grit anything else you would tell somebody who wants to go into neurosurgery well I think you know what I think that young people should do is spend time with mentors one thing that I did not have access to that I would advise to parents and kids is to really identify early on, even in middle school or high school, spend time, mm -hmm. even uh, interview a doctor, so mm -hmm. to speak. Go out to dinner if your friends, if your family has friends who are doctors, go out to dinner with them and ask them questions. Maybe go to clinic and shadow them. Really get a real sense, because I think most young kids, unfortunately, don't really know necessarily what they're getting into. Uh, and life is sometimes about dreams, but sometimes it's also about um, uh, distinguishing between what is the reputation of a field and what the field is actually like. And if you want to be an architect, you probably should sit in the office of an architect for a day and really watch what they do. Exactly. Y your life is so varied. I mean, you have your clinical practice, you see patients in clinic, you're in the OR, you're department chair, you train, you publish. You recently, you just got back, you're off the plane from, from Germany. Can you tell a little bit about what you were doing in Germany about OR? Yeah, so one of my colleagues and I, Dr. Shannon Krishna, who's a, a dear colleague and an innovator and one of my neurosurgery uh, partners, and I went to 
meet with a company in, uh, in Germany to really look at the future, to talk about the future of surgery. And we're going to have a research relationship evolve out of that uh, between Mayo Clinic and this very innovative company in Germany. We're always looking to partner. You know, uh, the Mayo Brothers, who we aspire to be like, traveled the world, uh, uh, taking great ideas, bringing innovations back to Mayo Clinic, and that's what we're trying to do here. And really, tie, this trip uh, I was just on ties into the future of surgery. And we're seeing a big revolution now in surgery. Uh, we're moving away from conventional surgery, which is a lot like driving without a GPS, to what I would call precision individualized surgery. Or, uh, and one of the drivers of that is going to be image-guided surgery. And using images and imaging to really transform the way we do surgery, to make it a lot safer, more predictable, and get better outcomes. And, and that this particular trip was all about creating a shared vision around that concept that we're going to uh, really guide the future of our research and really help us evolve. Because at the end of the day, as a surgeon, you can't stand still. You have to every day. So every day we, at 5 in the morning, we meet we, for a research meeting. Uh, we, the students come in at 5.45. We meet with them for half an hour. And we ask the students to round with us. We round between around 6 a.m. and 7 a.m. to see our patients because when we're rounding to see our patients, the first and foremost, we want to make sure they're okay. We want to make sure they have a good plan for the day. We'll, we want to make sure that they're getting good care. We meet with our nurses and so on. But beyond that, you know, Mayo Clinic has three shields, clinical, research, and education. We always want to look for opportunities to educate on those rounds, but also to get great research ideas. The question is, if we're, if we're getting 90% good results, how can we go to 95%? Mm -hmm. How can we get to 99%? Keep pushing, right? Keep pushing yeah. the envelope. And you have to keep pushing the field forward. And that's what I love to do on a daily basis. You're constantly busy. I think that's amazing that you're able to hold that up. How do you have a life? I mean, you've got a beautiful <laughs> wife here. You've got two incredible kids. How do you... Well, I, I was telling Karen we should do a separate episode, a separate series on, on the spouses of physicians because how do you... How do you handle it? How do you? So how do you balance it? You also are on the Phoenix Symphony. You're into art. I mean, you're into so many things. How do you manage that? Well, I don't think I've. I don't think I have the the final answer on that. And I always tell people when they ask me, "What's the most challenging thing about your career?" And I say, "It's the dinners you miss with your children. It's mm -hmm. the breakfasts you don't have with them. Mm -hmm. It's the time that I have to be away from my family, my children, and my wife." And uh, that to me is the most challenging part. Uh, on the other hand, when I am with them, I try to give them my all. And if I had one advice, uh, if I could do things over again, I would always turn off my phone and computer when I'm around my kids and, and family. And uh, I think modern technology takes us away from that. Um, but, you know, what, one, I think the secret sauce is, is, is a combination of passion and integration. So it's important to have a, integrity means integrating uh, everything in your life from spirituality to science to, to everything you're doing make sure that it all fits avoiding distractions and uh, and when you make it all fit and it's and you drive your and your passion is synced with your family life and your work uh, that that I think is one way to make it work but it, I, but I never said it was easy so. it, it isn't but it's worth it you can't just take off your 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 hood and your 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 gown and say I'm done I'm not working anymore I don't want to do this uh, you're always constantly involved is there one thing you'd like the listeners to know about neurosurgeons that you that you wish they knew more about you well I think uh, people tend to think of we, there's a mythology in society that when we th we like to think of uh, heroes as being a single individual mm -hmm. and it's very important to know that um, and I think some of the answers to your earlier questions is, is it's very important to think about the team concept so one of the reasons I'm able to do everything I do is by building teams around me. And it's very important to surround yourself. My grandmother always said, surround yourself with people who are smarter than you. And, and I, I think I'm, I've, I finally learned that 
based, you know, and I think that um, you have to, and you have to, you have to reward those people, and you have to make sure that you let them know that they matter to you and to the and to the ultimate vision and, and destination and the journey. And so I think uh, if you want to go to neurosurgery, my message is think about the team you want to surround yourself with. That's great advice. You all hear that? It's great advice. It's all about your team. So thanks, Dr. Bendup, for your words of wisdom and, and for your amazing care of these patients. We're going to take a quick break and then come back and interview Michael Bendock about his nonprofit, Kids for Causes, and we'll hear more about that soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Are you ready to live younger, longer? Andrew and Aaron Stevens with Apply Everyday Health are partnered with a 100-year-old company to help you build health through natural approaches. Our scientists believe that the key to a healthy lifestyle lies within nature. By using ingredients proven to be safe and effective, our products provide nutrition guaranteed to change your life in a positive way. To find out how you can get the same top-of-the-line vitamins taken daily by Olympic athletes, astronauts, and the White House doctor herself, visit applyeveryday.com. Who's your doctor? When I was looking for a doctor, I thought, which person gets the best care of all and whose doctor's credentials are the most carefully reviewed? Well, the answer was obvious. Who looks after the President of the United States? My doctor is the doctor who is taking care of three presidents and their families, Dr. Connie Mariano. I've heard about her. She's board certified in internal medicine and has been practicing medicine for over 30 years. She was at the White House for over nine years and traveled everywhere with the president. Dr. Connie is available to me 24 hours a day, seven days a week by email, cell phone, or Skype. And when I see her in her private office in Scottsdale, she and her staff always treat me like I'm the president. I'm going to call her office now and join her practice. Dr. Connie Mariano, this is the doctor American presidents and their families have trusted with their lives, and I trust you with mine. For information about Dr. Connie Mariano's private practice, you need to visit drcmariano.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are tuned in to House Calls with former White House physician, Dr. Connie Mariano. If you have a question or comment for our show today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to drconnieradio at gmail.com. That's drconnieradio at gmail.com. Now, back to House Calls with Dr. Connie. We've got a really special show today because we've had the whole Bendog family here, and they are an amazing family. We've got Dr. Bernard Bendog, who is the head of neurosurgery at Mayo Clinic, Arizona. We have his wife, Karen, here, who is an amazing woman as well, and a businesswoman by background. And well, we've got to do a show, Karen, about 
about wives and about spouses to physicians and how you make it happen. We've got daughter Sarah here giving her brother uh, uh, teaching points and coaching him on. But most important as well, we've got Michael Bendock. And I'll give you a bit of background on Michael. In fact, the first time I I met with Dr. Bendock and the neurosurgery team, it was a couple years ago, you had just moved here and we're having dinner and I had asked you, how was your family adjusting to moving to Arizona? And you said, really quite well. And it's really the story about Michael's adjustment to moving here from Chicago. Michael is a freshman at Phoenix Country Day School. It's a great school here in town. About two years ago, when Michael was 12, he co-founded an organization called Kids for Causes with three of his classmates. And his buddies, actually, they're really good guys. They are currently eighth graders. Uh, the, the members of his group are Xander Black, Matthew Linhart, and Samuel Steiner. And Kids for Causes is an organization that raises funds for rare childhood diseases. And he's going to tell us more about it, but I wanted to share a little bit about his background. He is, as I said, a freshman at Phoenix Country Day School. His uh, organization is the Kids for Causes, and they have raised over 50000 Dollars by organizing runs, coin drives, and dinners. They raise awareness in Arizona about the importance of funding research for rare childhood diseases. They also partner with other organizations in Arizona to raise money and awareness. And this group recently received an award from Governor Ducey uh, to honor them for their work. Michael has many talents as well. It's in the family. He enjoys speech and debate, and he's competed in both of those regionally and nationally. He's involved with the Boy Scouts, and he's active with other philanthropic and community service organizations in Arizona. In his free time, when he's not studying and getting straight A's, he enjoys playing basketball and watching sports. He loves to travel. He learns from different cultures, and he's currently studying three languages, Arabic, Spanish, and most recently French. So, Welcome, Michael, to our show. Hi. Tell us how how it felt moving here from from Chicago. Well, at first it was kind of, because I've never moved before, so it was a big change. And in the first month, I wanted to do nothing but move back. But eventually I learned that moving is actually a good thing because you get to meet many new people that you would have never gone to meet, do many things that you would have never known about, and move to a new environment where you learn to adapt, which would help you later on. So I do like miss Chicago, but I, would, I wouldn't go back because moving was a great experience. Well, how did you adjust? I think the story came about, your dad was telling me that that's how you developed this organization. Yeah, so in the second month of school, I had gone uh, together with a couple of friends, and one of them, Samuel Steiner, and I decided that we wanted to start a fundraiser. So we started brainstorming ideas and decided that because his younger brother, Harry Steiner, has a rare disease, that we should raise money for his cause and many others like that. And so how did you start off? Did you, did you get some guidance from the adults or how did you, you, you do that? How did you start raising money? So we thought that the two of us couldn't do it alone. So we reached out to two of our other friends, Matthew and Xander. And then with Samuel's mother's help, we met with Tijin, which uh, is an organization in the Valley which raises money using genomics for uh, diseases. So we met with them and we decided to raise money for rare diseases because it's a cause that our community was passionate about because of his younger brother. 
So after that meeting, we decided that that was set. That's what we were going to raise money for. So the next step was to decide how we would raise money. So our first event was a coin drive, and we we started off very small because we thought we were going to raise about twenty dollars at the coin drive, and we ended up raising thirteen hundred dollars. Wow! So we knew, yeah. So we knew that from there we could raise much, much more. So once you, you get the money, what happens next with the money? How does it move on to the organization? So we get the money and put it in our bank account. And then once we have like a certain amount that they decide, we send it off in a check to Tijan. And they use the money for research. And their goal is to use uh, health and genome to try and find cures and research for rare diseases. And you pick rare diseases primarily because of Harry, right? Because yes. there wasn't a lot of money allocated to that? Exactly. So there's 7,000 rare diseases, and one in uh, 300 Americans have a rare disease, which means that over 10 million Americans have rare diseases. Yet, because there's so many of them, it's so underfunded, so we decided that even though we were just a group of four kids, we were going to do everything possible to help that cause. Have you gotten a lot of people donating then through your website? Yes. So uh, people can donate through our website, and we've had many donations through there. But we've also had donations at the Corn Drive, at our run, and at our restaurant fundraiser. What's the, what surprised you most about all this? Uh, the biggest surprise for me was how many people supported us. So like I said, at the Corn Drive, we were expecting such a low amount, but so many people came by. At our run, we didn't expect that many people to show up, but we got over 230 people. And the support is probably the biggest thing that surprised me because we're just a group of four kids and we didn't really know where we were going. But it's amazing that you had the initiative to do that, to get it started, and you were passionate about You had a face to apply to that. You had Harry, the somebody that you knew who had it, and then you went to do that. If our listeners wanted to donate, how would they go about doing that? They can go to our website, which is kids4causes.org, where you, then you can click the donation button, and your donation will be tax-exempt because it's through the TGEN 501c3 organization. That's incredible for your young age to do it. So what do you, okay, so your plans, what do you plan to do after you graduate? I'm not sure yet, <laughs> but uh, I'm open-minded, so... Uh, I'm not really sure what I want to do yet. No, no parental pressure at all. Not really. <laughs> That's a good thing. You got to sort of find your way and what what you love to do. Maybe you go into business. Yeah, fundraising maybe. is one of the hardest things. If you talk to institutions that do professional fundraising, it is tough business. Yeah. And you've already mastered at an early age Thank how you. to do that success. So, listen out there, all the listeners, go on to kidsforcauses.org. I just did that this afternoon. It's very easy to donate. They take credit cards and you should get tax credit for it and it's a great cause. So thanks so much, Michael, for what you've done. And I always believe it's it's a no-brainer. It's good to give. It's important to do it and you've done incre- incredible things. So Thank you. congratulations. I was thinking about what you do as, as a charitable organization and philanthropic philanthropic methods and you know the old adage is true it's better to give than to receive and I came across there's an article that was published in Nature Communications a few years ago and it talked about the fact that generosity changed the activity in people's brains I don't know if Dr. Bendock has heard about it but by the very act of generosity of contributing and giving things to people 
the feelings of happiness increase in the, and they've been able to track it in people's brains by functional MRI to see what parts of the brains light up. And they had researchers from University of Zurich they took 50 men and women, they filled out questionnaires about their current mood, and then they gave each of these people 25 Swiss francs, which is about $25, once a week for the next month, and then half of the 50 people were asked to spend this on themselves. Then the other half were told to choose a recipient each week to whom they would give the money that they were given. In other words, half the volunteers agreed to be selfish and spend it on themselves. The other half were going to be generous and give it to other people. So at the beginning of the study, the participants were slid into a functional MRI machine and had a computer screen, and it flashed hypothetical scenarios involving monetary gifts to loved ones at a personal cost. And then the uh, MRI recorded their brain activity as the volunteers decided on how they would react to, to each situation. Afterwards, the researchers again asked the participants about their mood, especially happiness, and they compared the results with the responses on the initial survey. So those who agreed to give away money reported feeling significantly happier than those who planned to spend it on themselves. So big message there. They also made more generous choices during the functional MRI testing, agreeing to more scenarios that came at actually a personal cost to them. And their brains work differently. When the study subjects who had pledged to spend money made generous picks, the MRI scan showed greater activity in the portion of the brain, the temporal parietal junction, which is associated with altruism. So when you're operating, Dr. Benda, try to avoid that area. You don't want to be touching that area unless you have to. And that portion of the brain was also showing greater functional connectivity, communicating more readily with other part of the brain, the, the ventral striatum known as the brain's reward center. So there is clinical evidence, scientific evidence, to show that it really is good for your brain and makes you happy just to give. So please contribute to Kids for Causes, which is Michael Bendock's group that they started, really for a good reason. So the reason here is it's good to be generous and philanthropic and to help others. So thanks again. We're wrapping up a, another uh, episode of House Calls, and I, I thank the Bendock family for sharing this afternoon. Luckily, we didn't have to cancel any of Dr. Bendock's uh, patients today. And thank you, Michael, for you were done with school today, right? Yeah. You're all done with it. So and for Karen and for Sarah. So thanks for joining in to House Calls. And please go on and have a wonderful rest of the week. Be positive, be generous, and be good to each other. Take care and God bless. Thank you again for joining us this week for House Calls with Dr. Connie Mariano. We'll be back next Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Have a terrific week.